continue our series this week in the book of Hebrews, entitled Better Than. Before we read today's passage, I want to remind you of the context of the book. We don't know who wrote it, but as with all of the rest of the Bible, we know it was God-inspired. We know it was God-breathed. And whoever wrote it was capturing what God wanted to say to the audience being addressed. So who was that audience? Well, it was written to Christians who'd converted from the Jewish faith and who were living at a time of great persecution, somewhere around the middle of the first century between, I don't know, AD 55 and AD 70. And so great was the persecution that some of them may have been inclined to return to the synagogue to return to the Jewish faith, which would have required them to renounce Jesus as having come as the Messiah. And whilst Christianity was illegal, the Jewish faith was still okay. And the church had to go underground and was operating in secret. But for Jewish converts, there was an out from the immediate sufferings and persecution. And it's into this context that the book was written. And it's not surprising, therefore, that there are warnings contained in it of the eternal consequences of denying Jesus for some short-term relief from persecution. That's the historical context. But our passage today, as with all Scripture, is relevant to our situation, our current situation, our context And the passage we're going to look at talks about rest and the importance of rest. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 and the first 13 verses of chapter 4, but since the passage begins with a therefore, uh, we're going to dive back into chapter 3 and we're going to start reading uh, from verse 12 of chapter 3 just to try and get a bit of context into the passage that we're looking at today. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please open them to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to start reading at verse 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some available on the table at the back. If you don't have one at home, take the one off the table and take it home with you and use it as a study during the week. Okay, reading from Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest any... Lest lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter 
because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for those words that we've just read at the end of that passage that talk about the power of your word. And as we come to you this afternoon, we want to pray afresh, just as Jenny prayed earlier, that you would have your way amongst us, that your word would speak right into our hearts and would do the work that it needs to do in our lives. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak a word into the heart of every single person here this afternoon, a word in season, a word that is right and appropriate for their current circumstances and situation. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that none of us, not one of us, would leave this place the same as we came in. Pray, Lord Jesus, you do your work in us. Amen. I'm just going to take a slurp and then we'll dig into this passage. Okay, so rather than go through this passage verse by verse, I've actually split it up into a number of key questions, I think that the writer is addressing, and we're going to look at those questions in turn. Uh, the first one is, why rest? 
You might think, well, that's a pretty basic question, isn't it? You know, we know the answer. That's that's pretty obvious. It might be that we know the answer in theory, but maybe we find it difficult to put it into practice. I wonder how many conversations you've had. I was going to say over the past few weeks, but actually even today maybe, uh, with people where you said to them, how are things? And the response has been, oh, so busy. Oh, gosh, I haven't had a moment to myself. I'm exhausted from rushing around. Life is just so hectic. I've said it so many times myself. And actually, I've heard it said even today. In fact, I've said it today myself as well. It's as if we wear our busyness as a badge of honor. It's an indication of our success or our importance or a sense of duty. It can be certainly true of us in our jobs, but actually it can also extend to our social lives and our leisure activities. Our busyness can be born out of a sense of of responsibility or, or maybe out of a sense of insecurity or maybe to achieve the affirmation of others. You know, we live in an age when the pressures on people to perform are arguably greater than at any other time. Technology means that we need never be out of contact. So you may even get messages from work at weekends or when you're on holiday. You come back from the beach and your phone's at the hotel and there's messages on there uh, from work. You may even get messages while you're sat in this meeting this afternoon. If you're looking at your phone, I'll assume that you've got a Bible app on it and that you're not checking your messages uh, from work. But maybe not. Compound that with living in an affluent area such as we do, where people are looking to improve their job or their status, to appear successful, to acquire the trappings of success. A new car, a better house, membership of the right golf club or the right spa. And you know, we can be tempted to conform. We can be tempted to fit in. If you Google rest, uh, not while I'm speaking, but if you Google rest, you'll find thousands of entries talking about the rest we need for different areas of our lives. Our physical rest, a mental rest, an emotional rest, a spiritual rest, a sensory rest, a creative rest. All sorts of rest. You'll find psychologists promoting their self-help books or strategies to help us rest. Much of the recent research on rest emerged through the pandemic, with people growing more and more fatigued through life with looking at the news, growing fatigued by the fact that work, their work pattern had been destroyed, as it were. And the inability to take vacations or the frustrations of having those vacations booked and then cancelled. In our passage, we read that God 
the creator of the universe and everything in it ordained rest and modeled it. We read in verse 4, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He completed his work in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. He didn't rest out of exhaustion, but he rested because his work was done. And then you'll recall that when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God provided manna for his people to gather. And they gathered manna six days of the week. And on the sixth day, they gathered a double portion of manna that was sufficient to feed them for the Sabbath day. Later, when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the Ten Commandments, the fourth of which was, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In creation and in the fourth commandment, God established the principle that one day out of seven should be free of work and that it should be dedicated to him an opportunity for us to reflect and remember his work in creation and his amazing work in salvation. So then the second question is, well, we say better than, but better than what? In saying that Jesus is a better rest, we need to ask ourselves the question, better than what? And I think there are two elements to that question, or two elements to the response to that question. Firstly, better than the promised land. The writer refers to Joshua in this chapter and the fact that the Israelites saw amazing miracles of God in the plagues while they were in slavery in Egypt, in their release from captivity, in the parting of the Red Sea, and yet they failed to enter the promised land because of their fear and unbelief. They'd been promised a land flowing with milk and honey. And that was true. The 12 spies brought back with them, after their sortie, some fruit from the land. And it was good. But when they reported back, they spoke of the obstacles. The people were giants. They were powerful. The cities were fortified. And there were enemies to be overcome. It was only Caleb and Joshua who had faith for the taking of the land. As we know, the Israelites eventually did take the land. And they had many battles to fight. It wasn't a bed of roses. It was God's provision for them, though. And it was good. But it wasn't the ultimate rest. How do we know? Well, God tells us in verse 8 of our passage, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Where did he speak of another day? Well, it's referenced in our passage. The writer to the Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, having referenced those whose disobedience meant they didn't enter the promised land, 
he goes on to say in verse 7, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Here's David, inspired by God, hundreds of years after the Israelites entered the promised land, writing about the rest that God provides in the present tense. Today. So he's not referring back to the promised land. And the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this. And a thousand years later quotes it again, inspired by God, in the present tense, today. The thing about today is that it's as relevant today as it was when the letter was written. The promise of rest is still available to us today. So as we read this today, the offer of rest is open. It's still open to us. We shall see later how, the how we can benefit from that offer and what it leads to. But Jesus' rest is also better than what the world offers. Have you noticed that regardless of our inclination to talk about our busyness and almost to take delight in it, actually, we also long for rest. Amidst all our restlessness, we long to rest. We know we need rest. We know we can't survive when constantly working or rushing around to fulfill all sorts of different obligations or needs. Some of us drive ourselves. Others may feel they're being driven. You may be the sort of personality that drives yourself to be seen, to be successful. Others are driven and feel they have to perform in order to keep their jobs. It may feel to some as if they're like a hamster on a wheel that's constantly revolving. It's exhausting, but how do you stop it? The world offers all sorts of so-called solutions to our need for rest. We're encouraged to get eight hours sleep a night. No bad thing. Those of you here with young children might think that's a real luxury to get eight hours sleep a night. Some people choose to go away on retreats or to throw themselves into some form of physical exercise or take up sorts of meditation. I saw a website the other day that offered 83 ways to rest and recharge. Actually, time's moved on. It's probably got to 100 ways now to rest and recharge. Adverts on television or in magazines promote the sort of holiday that is pure rest and relaxation in some idyllic setting. Many of these may seem good, and may provide us with some temporary relief from our weariness. What they can never do 
never do is to provide the sort of rest that Jesus spoke about and that the writer to the Hebrews is referring to. All these things will disappoint us in the end. They are sticking plaster solutions to our restlessness. For example, when you return from that idyllic holiday, if you managed to return, uh, if you managed to avoid flight delays and, uh, and traffic jams, how long does it take for the beneficial effect of the holiday to wear off? In my experience, it's a matter of days. You arrive back to an inbox that's full of emails to be answered or a backlog of work that needs to be dealt with. You know this to be true. And it could be quite depressing if I stopped there. If there were no more lasting solution to our restlessness. But I won't stop there because, as we shall see from our passage today, there is only one lasting solution to our restlessness. Augustine, one of the great early church leaders, wrote these words some 1,700 years ago. Because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Let me say that word, those words again. Because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. So what is this better rest? Well, I believe that what's being spoken of in this passage is a two-dimensional rest. The primary focus is the eternal dimension, and we'll get to that. But I believe it speaks also to a rest in Jesus in this life. Do you recall the incident in Jesus' ministry when he visited uh, the home of Mary and Martha? It's recorded in Luke 10. And we read there that now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I wonder who you identify with in that story. There was nothing inherently wrong with what Martha was doing. You might think, well, Come on, she was showing hospitality. She was being kind. What's wrong with that? Well, Jesus tells us what was wrong. She was distracted. She was anxious. She was troubled. She'd got her priorities wrong. She had the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet just as Mary was doing and to spend time with him and to learn from him. But instead, she was fretting over things that are temporal. 
Those words of Jesus could, I suspect, be addressed to many of us. I wonder what are the things that you're anxious or troubled about this afternoon, or that have taken your time and attention during the course of this past week. I believe Jesus would say to you what he said to the people 2,000 years ago, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can't find a peace and a rest in this life. Sorry, let me start that again. We can find a rest and a peace in this life as we read his word. And as we give over to him in prayer our fears, worries, and our anxieties. In doing so, we recognize that he is God and we are not. We recognize that he is in control and that he knows what he's doing. Whether it be anxieties about our work, our finances, our children, our health, or just the future in general and what it holds, he knows about it. And he's with us as we face into those situations if we put our trust in him. David captured the sense of rest and refreshing that comes from spending time in God's presence when he wrote in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yeah, he restores my soul. That's what happens when we take time out to spend with Jesus. When we move from the busyness of life to spend time at his feet, he restores, he revives our soul. In Matthew 6, when addressing the question of anxiety about these sorts of things, Jesus encouraged his listeners to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because all of these things will be added to you. For us to be at rest in this life, we need Jesus. There is no rest in this life without Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on him and put our trust in him. But there's a further and much more significant dimension to the rest that's being referred to in this passage. And it is an eternal rest. Rest in this life will never be perfect. We have work to do, the pressures that that can bring. And we face hardships and difficulties, trials and temptations, just as those that existed in the promised land, in spite of God's amazing provision there. What is promised for those who hear the good news and respond to it and who persevere to the end is an eternal rest. It's a perfect rest. It's a rest from our labors, not because we're exhausted, but because our work is completed. In just the same way as God rested on the seventh day, having completed creation in the previous six. It's a rest in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his his death, 
resurrection and his return to his father, he said he was going to prepare a place for them and he promised to return to take them so that where he was, they would be also. That promise is for all those who put their trust in him. In Revelation 21, we're given a foretaste of what it will be like when Christ returns to take his bride, the church. We read there, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Yeah, that's an amazing picture. There will be no more laboring, no more sickness, no more suffering, no sin. Because there's no sin, there'll be no death. This is the better rest that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. What a glorious hope. Are you excited by it? Yeah, it's a glorious hope for those who put their trust in Jesus. The rest afforded by the promised land comes nowhere close to this. Nor does the closest walk with Jesus that we might develop in this life. They're helpful, but they're a mere foretaste of what is to come for those whose trust is in Jesus. So then finally, who is this rest for and how do we arrive at it? Well, our passage makes it plain that to benefit from the better rest that's on offer to us through Jesus, we need to hear the good news. We need to believe it and we need to act on it. Let's unpack that. The Israelites who failed to enter the promised land had heard the good news. But we're told they weren't united by faith. They didn't believe it. They disobeyed and turned against God. For us, the good news is the gospel. In Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Jesus came to offer to us a way of escape from the penalty of our sin, which would have been eternal separation from him. And he makes this escape possible through taking on himself the penalty that was ours when he went to the cross, shedding his blood. You know, just as the blood of a lamb was, was sprinkled on the doorposts by the Israelites, and that enabled their escape from Egypt. To obtain this rest, we need to accept this good news and to act on it. We need to confess our sin and put our trust in Jesus, accept that his perfect sacrifice has done everything that is necessary 
to deal with our sin and to make it possible for us to spend eternity with him. But you know, that's not just, it's not a one-off decision that we make and then go back to living life as we lived it in the past. That's not persevering. We need to make that one, one decision, but we need to follow through on that decision. It's a daily choice that we make to follow him, to live lives that please him and that display his glory to others. Verse 12 of our passage says, let us strive to enter that rest. I don't want us to interpret that as us trying to add anything to what Jesus has already done. His work on the cross was a finished work. He said, it is finished. We can't add to it or improve it. We are saved by grace through faith. What we are called to do, though, is to stay faithful, to persevere, as we heard last week from Owen. And how do we do that? Well, I think there's a couple of elements that are clear from our passage. In verses 12 and 13, the writer tells us about the power of God's word. It's alive, it's active, and it's sharp. If we commit ourselves to reading our Bibles daily, then the Holy Spirit will continually identify areas in our lives where we need to submit to God's authority. He will even speak into the thoughts, intentions, and desires of our hearts. Nothing, nothing is hidden from him. You know, that's both a fearful but also a wonderful thing, that we have a God who loves us and nothing is hidden from him. And then, in a couple of places in our passage, the writer uses the word us. In verse 1, he says, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And in verse 11, he writes, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In using us, I see the writer bringing a sense of community. Not only that, but identifying himself with the action. Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to look out for one another, to speak truth to one another. The gospel fluency course is proving so useful in helping us to see how we can do this. And we need to commit ourselves to do that, not just for the eight-week duration of the course, but for the long term. Paul wrote to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is not something that can or will happen if all we do is gather together on a Sunday afternoon. Important though that is, I'm not saying don't be here on a Sunday afternoon. Be here on a Sunday afternoon, but that alone is not sufficient. It comes through us committing ourselves to one another. Small groups are helpful, but will benefit even more 
if we commit to investing in a relationship with one or two other Christians where we are accountable to each other. Maybe as we work through the Bible following seeing, uh, seeing Jesus together in the same groups that we do that. In Proverbs we read, as iron sharpening iron, so, no, so one man sharpens another. You know, we sharpen one another by pointing things out to one another, by pointing each other to Jesus. We're going to come together to share communion together in a moment. It's a simple meal that reminds us of Jesus sharing with his disciples before he went to the cross. And they, in turn, celebrating the Passover, the time God made the way for the Israelites to escape from captivity in Egypt. Before we do so, I want to urge any here who've heard the good news of Jesus and not responded to do so. What we've talked about today calls for not just hearing but acting on what you've heard. And similarly, for any here who have responded on one occasion but have since turned their backs on God and rejected him, to come back to him, to put your trust in him and to persevere. In him alone can we find a rest amidst the challenges we might face in this life and a perfect rest in eternity. I'm going to pray and then we're going to share communion together. If you're here this afternoon, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, or if you've maybe once made a decision but then have continued in your old ways and have never followed through on that decision, I'd like you just to repeat after me, not out loud, but in your hearts, the words of this prayer. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you came with a rescue plan for mankind. We recognize that you came to save us from our sins. And in coming to do that, you took upon yourself our sins and our shame and you bore it on the cross. What you did on the cross was a complete work that, uh, that makes it possible for us to know peace and rest in this life and peace and rest with you in eternity. And Lord Jesus, we want to say that we have failed you. We fit into that category of those who had sinned against you, those you came to rescue. And Lord Jesus, we want to say we're sorry for our sins and we want to just claim your death on the cross as forgiving us for our sins and making us righteous because you alone are righteous. We want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. We want to put our trust in you, Lord Jesus. We want to commit our lives to following you, being those who will be your disciples and following you.
We want to ask for your Holy Spirit to strengthen and empower us daily to live the lives you want us to live, that we might persevere to the end. We might be those who know not just your rest in this life, but the perfect rest that you offer in eternity. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you have done for us, that you have paid the price in full, that you have made that perfect rest possible for us. We thank you so much. Amen.